Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 12 in the book of John, titled, I am the Bread of Life, where we discuss John chapter 6, verses 25 through 51. I am Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, the text we're studying today directly follows last week, and Jesus had fed the 5,000. He had multiplied this uh, boy's lunch of five loaves and two fish. The crowd was astonished. They wanted to make him king. They said, this is the prophet who's come into the world. And Jesus hid himself and went away and eventually went to the other side of the sea. The crowd followed him to the other side of the sea, and then Jesus gives this extended discourse. Can you tell us what we're going to find in this section? Yeah, absolutely. We're going to have another beautiful image that Jesus uses here, a metaphor of eternal life. Um, and here we see the fact that our eternal life in Christ is um, a needy, dependent spiritual reality. It's the kind of thing that needs feeding. Jesus uh, offers himself as the bread of life, and we understand the, the image of eating, uh, and so we need to eat to live. And so Jesus uh, there says something very, very important for all of us. Uh, it's vital for us to comprehend. Do not labor for the food that spoils but instead for the food that endures to eternal life, and that is Christ himself. Don't have your focus on earthly things, but instead on Christ. Now, as this teaching goes on, he's going to get into some details that are very, very hard for people to hear. He's going to say, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he uses this kind of rhetoric in a way that really pushes people hard. So then we're going to end up finding a lot of people, and, and I don't know that we're going to do it in this account, uh, it's in, later in the chapter, but next, to, next tomorrow, time, yeah, next podcast. are going to uh, fall away. They're going to drop away and not follow Jesus anymore. So before that even happens, Jesus gets out ahead of it, giving some amazing doctrine on, on the absolute certainty and the sovereignty of God and salvation. So we're going to get into some pretty deep waters today. Yeah. Well, I'm going to read verses 25 through 51. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate man in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. 
They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. I mentioned the crowd had to cross the sea and come to him. That's what verse 25 alludes to. And they ask him, you know, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So how is this a rebuke for them? You know, sometimes Jesus says, don't look for a sign. But here he seems to say, if you were looking for the signs, you know, maybe I would approve that. Yeah, I mean, they're really focused on on their physical material needs. Uh, as Philippians uh, 3 talks about reprobates, uh, people who are not, um, or people that are not converted, we put it that way. Uh, their God is their stomach. Uh, they're living for earthly appetites. So Jesus, first of all, we just see his deity here and that he knows their motives. He knows their reasons why. And, and there are different reasons for coming to Christ in this way. Some of them show the effects of, of the saving work of the Holy Spirit on people's hearts, but others don't. And so these people are just there for another meal. And they, it's almost like they want Jesus to keep feeding them as he did in the feeding of the 5,000 miraculously. In which case they could quit their jobs, they could relax, like winning the lottery or something like that. There's this, this extreme focus on, on physical needs. And Jesus very much wants them to lift their eyes up off their stomachs onto eternal things. I feel like that's kind of applicable even now when some people are part of religion or even nominal Christianity because of, you know, the benefits of regular Sunday observance or good standing in the community, you know, just being a part of Christianity for the for the material benefits, not necessarily really seeking Christ as Lord to honor him. Yeah, you would see that definitely. We we are in a church here in First Baptist Durham that was in the Bible Belt and I I could well imagine that in the nineteen fifties and sixties it was it was socially beneficial and, and professionally beneficial to be a member of this church. You could make all kinds of business connections. So that would be a terrible motive for being part of a, of a church. Even worse, of course, is the prosperity gospel in which openly, right down the center of their theology, are things that we would call for the stomach, for the body. They're just physical things, uh, prosperity, health and wealth, etc. And Jesus is absolutely pointing above that to eternal life. Yeah. So he says, Do not work for food which perishes, but for food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. I want to ask you about this idea of laboring for eternal life. Because we're, we're taught and we're catechized that we're not supposed to labor for our salvation, right? Believe. Works are no good when it comes to justification. Please explain what you think Jesus is getting at. Well, you know, you have the same problem in Isaiah where it says... Um, all you who uh, are thirsty, come, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. So there's actually the verb in Isaiah, buy, um, without money and without cost. So how do you buy without money? So it's the same kind of problem. I think here's the thing. It's not like, you know, we are dead in our transgressions and sins before we're converted, but it's not like we can't do anything. 
So you think about Zacchaeus climbing up the, the sycamore fig tree to be able to see Jesus. Or you think about the blind uh, people by the side of the road calling out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. So there is a certain laboring that comes. And I think the Holy Spirit works. And we're going to talk about this later in this very same text about the Father drawing individuals. In the process of drawing, there are some efforts. People go to hear a preacher preach. They go to a Bible study, investigate a Bible study. A friend invites them to a Christian meeting. So that's the laboring uh, in, in that you're saying, I need something. Something's something's off. Just like earlier with Nicodemus, Jesus said, you must be born again. So even before you're converted, you can know that there's a big lack in your life. So there's a laboring, there's a, a, a something that happens before we are born again. So I think he's saying, do that. Focus on your soul. Your top priority should be absolutely whatever it takes to receive eternal life by faith in Christ. Yeah, I've often thought of it just of like, what are you living for? Like, yeah. do you live for the food it perishes or do you live for eternal life? Your right? focus. Seek whatever first. you're living for, your labors are going to go towards that end, exactly. right? As, as uh, he said in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So there's a seeking that goes goes on. So he says, look, don't don't have your, your focus be on your stomach. Have your focus be on, on the health of your soul, your eternal eternity, whether you spend it in heaven or hell. Well, they ask him, what shall we do to work the works of God? Or what can we be doing to do the works of God? Basically, they're saying, what, how do we do God's work? Jesus gives a very simple but insanely profound answer. Mm, mm, mm. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Mm. How is believing in the one God sent the work of God? It's almost like a paradox here, isn't it? We learn very clearly from the Apostle Paul that, that sinners are justified not by works but by faith. And so um, it's, it's kind of like we were saying a few moments ago. Um, there is no good work you can do um, in your unconverted state so that your sins would be forgiven. This is the clear teaching of the New Testament. No human works can ever be offered as a wage to pay for sins. And so given that, that the sins are what have separated us from the holy God, there is no work you can do. This is... You could almost say the, the phrasing here, you could, you could see Jesus would approve of this, I think. It's not works that the Father's requiring of you now. What he's requiring of you is to believe in the one he sent. So, um, but he just accepts their language um, and says the work, the focus for you needs to be believing. So ultimately, faith is not a work. Um, it is, it's a capacity of soul to be able to perceive, to see invisible spiritual reality. And that's something that God alone gives. We're blind before he gives it, and then he gives it. There's no working to be done. There's no laboring. So maybe if we were to rephrase Jesus' answer, we would say, this is what God requires yeah. of you, that yeah. you believe. This, Yeah, this is what God requires. That's exactly right. But we don't want to, you know, what Jesus said is what he said. This is the work the Father has given you, that you believe in the one he has sent. So uh, fundamentally, though, um, it is we learn clearly from the Apostle Paul and from many other places, it is not by works, but by faith alone. Look again at the thief on the cross. What work was there that he could ever have done? Uh, his hands and feet were literally nailed, immobile. So there were no works he could do, and he uh, received this incredible promise of grace. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Mm -hmm. Now their answer, I mean, they, the audacity of <laughs> they, they answer him. They say, what work will you do? What sign do you show us that we can see and believe you? What work will you perform? And then they remind him that, that Moses had given them manna. 
You know, Mo, he said, our fathers ate man in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, it's ironic because the previous day, Jesus had multiplied the bread and the loaves, but they're asking for another sign. What do you make of this? Yeah, it's pretty amazing because Jesus says at the beginning of this encounter, as we started the podcast today, um, and I tell you the truth, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves. Now they're talking to him about miraculous signs. So, it, you know, what we see again and again in John's Gospel especially, it's not seeing is believing. It's more like believing is seeing. If you have a heart of disposition, you will see what's going on. But if you don't, you're going to be blind. And so these, Jesus could do this. He could feed them again. Even, you know, he could turn stones into bread and they'd be back the next day. And so fundamentally, they're looking for a river of miracles. And even if they were to see that river of miracles, which they, if they hung around Jesus, that's what they were seeing healings day after day after day and they're asking for him to do a sign and so this is this is unbelief john's gospel is about belief but it's also about unbelief and so we're about to get pretty serious he's about to take the gloves off because he knows that they don't believe in him and he's going to make that very clear yeah jesus says to them in verse 32 truly truly i say to you it was not moses who gave you the bread from heaven but my father gives you the true bread from heaven Verse 33, for the bread of God is he, the person, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. If you would just recap for us the role of Moses you know, as the mediator and God bringing manna from heaven and how that was a preparatory work. And then what Jesus is getting at when he says that the bread of God is the one who gives life to the world. Yeah. So obviously they, they're the ones that came and brought up Moses and the man and they said, look, that's, you know, Moses did that. You know, can't you do that? And um, so they're, they're comparing him to Moses. And, you know, Jesus, as we, we saw in the book of Hebrews, we see again, Jesus is greater than every Old Testament hero. He is above all of them. You know, Moses was a servant in God's house. Jesus is the son over the house. And so, we're, you know, again, yes, Moses did this incredible miracle. <laughs> Ironically, they ate the manna and they didn't believe. You know, as we saw in John 3, there was the bronze serpent incident and all that. So they're eating manna and they got sick of the manna and they didn't believe God. And so it, it's ironic they should even mention that. But Jesus, and at one point they said, "We we hate this this terrible food. Or this you know we have this loathsome food." Oh, it's it really is a very low moment for the human race, and all we can do is just marvel at God's incredible patience with sinners like us. But um, here, Jesus lifts their eyes up above the type and the symbol of Moses and the physical manna in the desert to the spiritual reality. Jesus is the fulfillment of the manna. He is ultimately the bread that came down from heaven. And as you said, it's not a thing. It's not, it's not the wafer that tasted you know, sweet like honey and coriander seed and all that. It's not that. Jesus is the bread from heaven. He is the one who alone can feed our souls for eternal life. So he's trying to lift their eyes above, not only physical bread, but then even the account of the manna in the Old Testament. This is something greater. Like he, he said about, about uh, someone greater than Solomon is here, someone greater than Jonah is here. Yeah, someone greater than Moses and something greater than the manna is here right now, and it's me. Yeah, we're going to see that contrast because the manna was given and that entire generation still died. Yeah. And we are seeking, you know, we've been speaking about eternal life this entire uh, series of podcasts, and we are seeking eternal life, yeah. which actually, even if he came and brought physical manna, that would really do us no good. Yeah. Like we're seeking bread from heaven. That's yeah. what we really need. Absolutely. So they say, sir, give us this bread always. Mm. And Jesus answers them, I am the bread of life. Mm. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Mm. So, Talk about this idea of 
Jesus as bread and Jesus as as this life-giving sustenance and how do we eat how do we drink of him yeah well first of all we just need to see the importance and it's a formula again and again that Jesus uses and we see it here in John's gospel of the I am statement this is the this is one of the great I am statements you know at one point in John 8 he's gonna say before Abraham was born I am but he says I am the bread of life I am the, the good shepherd, I am the door for the sheep, he, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He makes these I am statements. So what he's saying here is he's totally focused on himself. He wants them to say, you've got to have all your focus on who I am. I am the bread of life. And so what does this analogy teach? In what way is Jesus a good shepherd? In what way is he a door? In what way is he a spring of living water? Here we have to ask, in what way is he bread? Okay, so as we said at the beginning of the podcast, what this is saying is our souls need nourishment, sustaining, just like the, the Samaritan woman in the well. We need nourishment, and Jesus is the source of our life, our eternal life. He is that. He is the bread that came down from heaven. And notice also the verbal formula here. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. So to come to him equals to believe in him. This is the way the Hebrew um, mind went, this repetition, but with slight changes, it gives you a sense of what he's talking about. So he's urging people to come to him, and that means to believe in him. And if you do, you will never be hungry or thirsty. He actually reaches for the thirst image back from the Samaritan woman at the well. So if you come to Jesus, you'll be 100% alive and satisfied for all eternity. Yeah, amen. You mentioned a minute ago that the Gospel of John is about belief and unbelief. Mm. And in verse 36, he says, But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Mm. And in 37, he says, All that the Father gives me yeah. will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Yeah. Let's talk about this idea of the Father giving people over to the Son and the implications for salvation and damnation. Right. I mean, really, from verse 36 on to the end of the chapter. We're dealing with the issue of not believing in Jesus. And also, on the back side, the opposite side of that, believing in him. But, but it's really more cast negatively because he knows what's going to happen this day. It would be a day that for any other ministry we would think would be devastating. The overwhelming majority of Jesus' disciples abandoned him this day because of what he said. Because he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And, and, and we're going to talk about this, I know, next time. But, but it's just, it's so hard that the overwhelming majority of them turn back and no longer follow Jesus. And again, we should not think this was an accident. Jesus knew that they really didn't believe in him. So he's just winnowing them out. But the fact is, for the rest of the time, he's dealing with the issue of belief, yes, but also of unbelief and why it is they are looking right at the evidence of his deity and his eternal life that he came to give, and they don't believe. You, know, I, I, you, you saw the miracle. You've you seen me, and still you do not believe. Let's talk about that. So really, I feel for the rest of the chapter, he's really addressing the issue of where does saving faith come from, and what about those that do not have saving faith? So uh, there are some absolute statements. Jesus uses language here that is black and white. He uses very strong, absolute language, like like um, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will never drive them away, and I will raise them up at the last day, and no one can come to me, etc. He uses these absolute statements. And so I think it's important for us to look at these absolute statements and what they teach us about salvation and God's activity. 
So let's go through that step by step. All that the Father has given me, right? We have theological terms for that. Uh, the you know election, election. yeah. Uh, and then he says, "Will come to me." Right. We call that uh, the moment of salvation. Sure. You know, uh, the effectual calling and then sure. salvation, justification. And he says, "The one who comes to me, I will never cast out." Right. Says Jesus, you know, the open gospel call to anybody who will come. But then he talks about he speaks of eternal security. He says, "Of all that he's given me, I lose nothing, mm-hmm. so they'll never be lost." Right. So whoever the Father has given to the Son, they will believe. Yeah. They will remain in the Son, and they will never perish. Yeah. Well, I think we ought to go step by step. And I, I'm going to just lean on a sermon that I heard a number of years ago by John Murray, a great theologian. And um, I will never forget it because he had a Scottish accent. And, and um, he cast it in this verbal formula. It is a moral and spiritual impossibility for X. And he just draws it right from these statements. So I'm going to actually begin at verse 44. In verse 44, Jesus, uh, you know, he's dealing with the grumbling disciples. They are not disciples. That Well, they, they claim to be disciples, but these this grumbling people, and, and they're grumbling about Jesus, and they're grumbling about, they know his father and mother and all this sort of stuff. So Jesus says, stop grumbling among yourselves. And then he says, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So let's begin there. It is a moral and spiritual impossibility for any person to come to Christ, that is to believe in him, if the Father doesn't draw him. That's a bombshell. It's a bombshell. It's It's incredible. anybody's theology. That's absolutely. It was for mine when I read it. Oh, yeah. So you cannot come to Jesus of your own free will. You can't up and decide to come to Jesus. If you have come to Jesus, genuinely come to him, Jesus is saying in verse 44, the Father drew you. Now, the word draw here uh, is a forceful thing, like the drawing of a sword out of a scabbard or the drawing of a dragnet through the, through the water of the Sea of Galilee. It's very forceful. And so the Father puts a drawing on your soul. And I believe that that happens uh, in an elect person from, from birth, that God is preparing them for the day they will finally come to Christ. He's getting things ready. So the Father is drawing them. And if that doesn't happen, you will never come to Christ. It is a moral and spiritual impossibility for anyone to come to Christ unless the Father draws him. Secondly, verse 37 he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So, in, in John Murray's way of, of speaking, it is a moral and spiritual impossibility for any that the Father draws to not come to Christ. So he's not going to lose anybody. 100% of the people that the Father draws to Jesus uh, will come to him. Now, in verse 37, it, it all began with the Father giving them to the Son. And we believe this is the doctrine of election. Before the foundation of the world, the Father gave them to the Son in name only, in idea only, because they didn't exist yet. Before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, they were not born yet. They existed only in the mind of God. But the Father gave them to the Son as a love gift. They were his. All right? So, first, verse 44, no one can come to Jesus unless the Father sent him, draws him. So, it's a moral and spiritual impossibility to come unless the Father draws. But secondly, if the Father draws, it is a moral and spiritual impossibility not to come to Christ. So this is the doctrine of irresistible grace, not a great way, word, uh, way of saying it. I think um, effectual calling is, is a better way of saying it. When the Father draws you, you come. And the reason is he knows you. He knows you completely. He knows what will motivate you. He knows your heart, even in its wickedness, in its hardness, he knows you. And he is able to pick the locks and to conquer your, your unbelief. And not by violating you the way demon possession does, almost like a raping of a human soul. Not at all. This is an enabling and a healing of the human soul. 
so that all of the, of the defects and the corruptions have been, have been healed and addressed. So all that the Father gives me will come to me. Thirdly, it is a moral and spiritual impossibility for Jesus to reject any that the Father brings him. It is impossible for him. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and, I, and of all that come to me, I will, he says, I will, I will drive away none. I'm going to accept them. You could well imagine, like Saul of Tarsus, for example, I don't want him. I mean, he's been assaulting and attacking and blaspheming me. Jesus isn't like that. The humility of Jesus. He will accept any that the Father draws, all of them. And so he, he will not drive any of them away. And that leads to the fourth and, and final moral and spiritual impossibility. It is a moral and spiritual impossibility for Jesus to lose any that the Father's given, but he will most certainly raise them up at the last day. They will, all of them, uh, be raised up at the last day. What does that mean? Resurrection bodies. That's the finish line of salvation. He's not going to lose any of them. 100% of the elect will finally be saved. This is the strongest assertion, I think, in the Bible, along with Romans 9, on the absolute sovereignty of God in human salvation. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, as many grumble about God's sovereignty and salvation, so the Jews are grumbling about it. And in verse 41, they say, uh, they grumble about this. They say, how can he say he's the bread that came down from heaven? They basically say, look, we know his father and mother. We remember what happened, you know. Um, you know isn't he just a mere human? And, and that's when Jesus gives that statement that you mentioned in verse 44, that no one can come unless the Father draws him. Yeah. Now, I want to zero in on verse 49, because this is where he really hits home the contrast between himself and Moses. He says, your fathers ate man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Then he says, the bread which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Wow. Mm. I think obviously he's talking about the crucifixion, but can you just elaborate on Jesus giving himself as life for the world on the cross and how that is life and bread for his people? Yeah, I think there's 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 just such a, a a complex relationship here between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We have to come to Jesus. We have to believe in Him. In this kind of sense, we have to eat of Him in some way. There's a partaking of Jesus, a full immersion, like like the water baptism image. We're just plunged into Jesus. And so the point here is it's not enough if you are literally there for the feeding of 5,000 to receive your barley loaves and fish. You had to put it in your mouth. You had to chew it and swallow it. And so the idea here is that we have to partake in Jesus' death, his, his bloody death on the cross. And you do that by union with him. Romans makes it plain. By faith in Christ, we are united with him. And his death becomes our death, and his life becomes our life. We've been united with him by faith. And so that is the partaking, the eating and drinking he's talking about here. But it's a, it's a marvelous thing what Jesus is doing here, because he's using language that is so difficult to accept that he knows what's going to happen. They're going to turn away from him. And so he's just weeding them out just by using this language. I don't think that any of the others, uh, Peter and James and John, Andrew, knew what it meant either. Later, they understood. But the fact is that fundamentally, Joel, you and I are believers in Christ. We have eaten the flesh of Jesus and drank his blood by 
repentance and faith in Christ, his death on the cross. So there's a full immersion or partaking in what Jesus did, but it's very physical. If Jesus had only the appearance of a human body, we would still be in our sins. He actually was literally human, born of the Virgin Mary. He had blood cursing through his veins, and that blood poured out when he was pierced, and it was shed. It actually physically flowed down his body, down the cross, onto the ground. It, it literally happened, and we have to see the physicality of it and partake of it. And I would say we continually eat of his of him and yeah. continually drink as we as we seek him in his word and I think we're continually mm -hmm. tasting him right. Yeah. So our eating is not physical; it's spiritual because he's going to say, you know, really that their minds are on the physical. The words that he's spoken are spirit and their life. So as we partake in the body and blood of Jesus by words, we do it by faith and we do it spiritually. So our our eating and drinking is spiritual, but his dying was not spiritual only it was it was physical so there was an actual body and blood given but then we eat and drink by believing and you're right we, we it was an ongoing feast every time we're just mindful of our sins we know that we need a savior that jesus died for us as we close the podcast i want to circle back to one of the things jesus said in the beginning of this podcast where he said do not labor for the food that perishes but for the food which endures to eternal life can you give some pointers um, some could be for unbelievers but also for believers on how to on how to orient their life towards the things that endure. Because sure. I know sometimes it's so easy to get bogged down in the cares of this life, you know, the, the job, the maintenance of the home, the car, you know, just, just things that aren't bad in themselves, but we end, up, we end up laboring for all things that perish. How do we orient our lives around the gospel, eternal life, things that matter, things that endure? Sure, so let's begin by addressing people who are not yet believers who may be listening to this podcast. There is a fear that must come on your soul. As John Newton said in Amazing Grace, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." What is it you need to fear? You need to fear dying, death. The Jews in the desert ate manna and died physically. Jesus came, you know, as it says in John three sixteen, "'For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish.'" So there's a perishing that's beyond physical, it's eternal, it's hell. We need to fear that. And we need to flee to him. We don't want to die. We want to live. And then there's a, a sweet, positive, a winsome, attractive side where it's like, but Jesus came that we would have life and have it abundantly. There's a feasting on him. So there is nothing more important for you as somebody who knows himself to be or herself to be an unbeliever to come to Jesus and partake in him, to believe that his death on the cross, the blood he shed on the cross was for you. And that if you believe in that, you will not die but live. Okay, so concerning believers, what we have to do is realize we're not done being saved. We still have a saving work that has to be done in us. He's not going to lose us. This is the, the central, anybody who struggles with assurance of salvation and the security of the believer, I bring them into John 6 every time, he's not going to lose any of us. He's going to raise you up at the last day. But between now and then, you need to keep eating and drinking. There's this ongoing partaking of Jesus. And so you have to be in the Word. You have to be feeding in God's, on God's, God's Word and, and reading it, and especially focus on the person and work of Christ. The Holy Spirit's going to elevate Christ in your mind, and Christ, the image of the invisible God, will be raised up within you, and you're going to feed, and your soul will be revived and renewed. You know, we were just talking about somebody that you knew that, that had, had having quiet times, and guess what? Now he's struggling with doubt. He's struggling with unbelief. He's, he's drifting away. 
And the remedy is clear. Get back in the Word. Feed on God's Word, especially as it portrays Christ alive, Christ dead, Christ risen, uh, Christ. Just focus on that, and you'll find yourself revived and renewed. Amen. Well, that was episode 12 in the book of John. Please join us next time for episode 13, titled, Eat My Flesh, Drink My Blood. We will continue Jesus' discourse with the Pharisees here from John chapter 6, verses 52 through 71. Thank you so much for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.